1908, the USS Albatross set off on a research expedition to the newly acquired U.S. colony of the Philippines. The crew had one mission in mind, collect as many fish specimens as they could. And it ended up collecting nearly 100,000 specimens of fish. And so these 100,000 specimens of fish are stored in over 27,000 jars. We can now go to those fish specimens, take a little bit of the tissue, and analyze the DNA. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we explore the genetic impact of overfishing in the Philippines. Later in the show, the evolutionary link between T-Rex and modern birds. But first, those fish samples collected by the albatross in 1908. Kent Carpenter is studying their DNA and comparing them to fish caught today. He suspects overfishing is actually changing fish genetics. Kent Carpenter is a biological sciences professor and eminent scholar at Old Dominion University. He was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Kent, you do a lot of your research in the magnificent coral reefs of the Philippines. How did you get started studying there? Well, um, after my undergraduate work, I joined the Peace Corps. So I went to the Philippines in 1975, and I asked to be put in the research arm of the Bureau of Fisheries and Aquatic Resources of the Philippines. I had the best job in Peace Corps that ever was and ever will be, because I was actually put in charge of coral reef research for the entire Bureau of Fisheries. So I got my start fresh out of undergraduate school with an enormous responsibility. And um, it was quite challenging because at that time, there were no scuba divers in the entire Bureau of Fisheries and Aquatic Resources of the Philippines. So the very first thing I did was to get a, a license to train people how to scuba dive. What was it like for you when you first went scuba diving in the coral reefs of the Philippines? Tell me about those reefs and what you found. Well, the coral reefs of the Philippines have more fishes, more fish species per unit area than any other place on the planet. Everybody thinks that the Caribbean is a very beautiful coral reef ecosystem, and it, that's true. But the number of species that you find on coral reefs of the Philippines is more than 10 times more than what you find on coral reefs of the Caribbean. About how many species? If you go into the water in, on a coral reef in the Philippines, you can easily record a couple of hundred species in, in the course of about an hour. Um, but in, in total, the number of species in the Philippines is nearly 3,000 species. And the Philippines is part of what is called the Coral Triangle of Indonesia. Help us understand the importance and the vastness of that coral triangle. Yeah, the Coral Triangle is like the Amazon River Basin of the marine realm. So we all know that the Amazon River Basin has many, many species, terrestrial species. But the marine world is really dominated by species richness in the Coral Triangle, which includes Indonesia, parts of Malaysia. The Philippines is at the apex of the Coral Triangle. And there's also Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands included in that coral triangle, as well as Brunei and uh, Timor-Leste. Are there a couple of stories you could share about what you found there? I never really was confronted by anything extremely dangerous. Of course, we encountered sharks. There were many sharks back then. Um, but sharks are really just beautiful to watch underwater. They move in sort of a ballet, and um, they were never very threatening. When they were, you know, a little bit threatening, we would just do what normal scuba divers do, and that's just to work your way out of the area and, and, and leave the water if necessary. The only time I was really in danger, I think, was when we were on an atoll in the Philippines, 
and we climbed up to the top of the lighthouse. And way, way off in the distance, we saw a storm. And suddenly we were surrounded by lightning. The top of the lighthouse had been struck by lightning while we were all up there. Of course, we were all quite startled. We looked around at each other and all of our hair was standing up on our heads and our arms and whatnot. And of course, we very quickly went down to the bottom of the lighthouse afterward. Can you remember early on one of your first dives when you were just overwhelmed by the beauty and richness of what you could see underwater? Yes. I mean, it's actually very vivid. So there's this one place called uh, Balikasag Island, and it's off the southern part of uh, the island of Bohol, Panglao. And just uh, a few meters from shore, you would go underwater and you would see um, whole schools of uh, these large parrotfishes. Parrotfishes are bigger in weight than humans, and there were just hundreds of these that are now very rare, just huge schools of things like jacks and uh, fusilier fishes, um, unbelievable numbers and, and beauty of fish back then. Um, unfortunately, now, if you go back to the same spot, you don't see um, these fish anymore. Back then, we had groupers, which were as large as small cars, so as big as, as a, a Volkswagen bug. I was very fortunate to, to be in the water in the Philippines at a time when it was relatively unharvested, unexploited. And tell me about the project you're doing now. It's so interesting. You have nearly $5 million from the National Science Foundation looking at the DNA of fish. Yeah, this is really a very, very cool project. It's sort of like um, genetic time travel. So you might recall that in 1898, we purchased the Philippines from Spain after the Spanish-American War. And uh, we essentially uh, started our first real colonial uh, attempt in 1898. So in 1908, we went to uh, the Philippines with a, a research vessel called the Albatross and collected fishes throughout the Philippines. And it ended up collecting nearly 100,000 specimens of fish. Wow. Okay. So 100,000 specimens of fish that made it back to the Smithsonian Institution. And so these 100,000 specimens of fish are stored in over 27,000 jars. Now, the jars have liquid in them, and the liquid is ethanol. When you study the DNA of fishes, typically what you do is you take a small piece of tissue from, that, from the fish specimen, and then you analyze the DNA. Nowadays, if you try to go to a museum and use the tissue of a fish to look at its DNA, it's not very successful because most fish nowadays are preserved, originally fixed in formaldehyde. So formaldehyde really destroys the DNA, making it extremely difficult to get good DNA sequences. However, the interesting thing about the albatross collections in the Philippines in 1908 and 1909 was that those fish were not fixed in formaldehyde. They were fixed in essentially high-powered rum. So they were fixed in, in ethanol. And as a consequence, we can now go to those nearly 100,000 fish specimens, take a little bit of the tissue, and analyze the DNA. And because each jar of fish represents one species from one locality in the Philippines, we can go back to that same locality in the Philippines, collect the same species, and analyze the DNA. So we actually have a comparison of fish tissue that was collected in 1908 and 1909 with today, with 2020, so that we can compare what has happened to the genetic makeup of those fish 
over 110 years of extreme exploitation and habitat degradation. What are you looking for? What kinds of changes? Why would we expect to see any evolution in these fish in such a short period of time? Fish populations actually change their genetic makeup over fairly short periods of time in response to certain stimulus. So if you can understand that DNA is really the basis of evolution, as the environment changes, then the fish need to have a certain amount of genetic variability in order to adapt to changes. So what we're expecting is to be able to see a signature of what has happened in the Philippines over these 110 plus years. The population of the Philippines has increased dramatically and the amount of fish that are being taken out of the water have increased dramatically. So we hypothesize that the genetic variability will have decreased over time. And as a consequence, the ability of these populations to adapt to changes such as climate change will also have decreased. So if we do understand how these fish have changed genetically, can we reverse engineer it? Is that knowledge useful to help us preserve or promote species? Absolutely. That's one of the main objectives of this project is to understand what sort of changes have taken place and in what species it's taken place. So different species have different capabilities of maintaining their genetic variability. So understanding what species are more vulnerable allows us to target those species for better management. And management is really the key to replacing that genetic variability, to allowing the populations to become healthy. Kent Carpenter is a biological sciences professor and eminent scholar at Old Dominion University. He was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Coming up next, a really interesting discovery about an evolutionary link between T-Rex and modern birds. The chucker partridge is a type of ground bird found in parts of Asia and the Western United States. To most of us, the chucker seems like an ordinary bird, but to Brandon Jackson, it's anything but ordinary. He's a biology professor at Longwood University, and he says this species gives profound insight into a question that has vexed scientists for centuries. How did birds evolve from dinosaurs? Brandon, you and your team studied the evolutionary linkage between birds and dinosaurs. Do we know which type of dinosaurs birds evolved from? We know a, a fair amount, actually, about that, and we've known for quite a while, uh, even going back over 100 years, that birds uh, evolved from theropod dinosaurs. And those are the dinosaurs with the basic shape. The most well-known one is Tyrannosaurus rex, although that was also the biggest. But there were a lot of much smaller versions of that that were running around on two legs had arms, uh, front legs, that, that they didn't use for running. Um, and so they basically st were standing upright and were just using their hind legs for running. And we know that that's the, the main group that gave rise to birds. I can picture that there are dinosaurs that look as you're describing, but I can't imagine T-Rexes being in that class. <laughs> T-Rex was an outlier overall for that group. Most of the species were much, much smaller. For example, well-known one from Jurassic Park movies is Velociraptor. That's in that group, and that's quite a bit smaller than T-Rex. And even that would have been fairly large. I feel like I remember in my lifetime when scientists suggested the linkage between birds and dinosaurs, and yet Darwin also saw a linkage, right? He did. Um, his companion, Huxley, was a paleontologist, and 
uh, was in communication with him and and was discovering fossils. And it was pretty early on, around the time that Darwin was working on the origin of species, that there started to be evidence of this link even between specifically theropod dinosaurs and birds. Although the real confirmation didn't come until quite a bit later. What was the first clue to Darwin and Huxley that there were dinosaurs and wings related? Uh, So there were a couple of clues in the fossils themselves. For example, theropod dinosaurs have hollow bones, and that's one of the unique features that we see in bird skeletons. And then also very early on, there was one of the most famous fossils ever found, that of Archaeopteryx. That was a fossil that had a number of theropod-like features, dinosaur features, but also had clearly fossilized wing feathers. And you could see these outstretched wings and even tail feathers. And so this was the first fossil that had these mixture of features of both theropod dinosaurs and of modern birds. What have been the scientific theories as to why birds may have evolved from dinosaurs? Why wings developed and feathers? Right. So historically, and even back to Darwin, the the real question has been, if you're going to go from something like, and you can imagine Tyrannosaurus rex because that's easy for people to imagine with these tiny, tiny little front limbs. How do you go from something with these little front, front limbs, these little arms, out to a bird with really long arms? And the question raised to Darwin pretty early on was what use is half of a wing? How do you transition? What is the purpose of it? And how does it actually function? If you just have this tiny little wing on your body, does it serve any function? Most of the debate has boiled down into two different sets of hypotheses. These are described often as the ground up versus the trees down hypotheses. So for ground up hypotheses, it's been there's been hypotheses about they used the, the wing feathers as nets to capture insects, or they leapt into the air to pounce on a prey item. And instead of just leaping and jumping and, and pouncing and landing, maybe they had their wings out and they could flap a little and control their landing just a little bit or something like that. And so you get these little, these little what we call incremental steps of improvement um, right. as wings get bigger. And so that's the that's the the pressure, the selective pressure to make wings bigger and stronger and more aerodynamic. The other side was the trees down hypothesis. And this basically says, well, it would be easier in a lot of ways if the pre-birds were already up on some elevated surface. Because the hard thing is going up. It's easy to come down. So if they were already up, maybe they climbed a tree or they climbed a cliff or they climbed a rock and then they jumped off Without a wing, you fall with gravity. You fall at 9.8 meters per second squared acceleration, and you quickly accelerate and you hit the ground hard. And if you have any kind of wing at all, even if you don't flap it, even if you just put it out, eh, maybe you could slow yourself down and that would reduce injury risk. Or you could control your landing a little bit and reduce the risk of injury. So all of these hypotheses have focused on that idea that birds went from falling Uh, and slowing that fall to eventually maybe gliding and pushing themselves a little further away from the tree or the rock. And eventually that led to flight. And that's where, for over 100 years, the debate had been focused. So tell me about you and your research team. A few years back, you made a huge discovery almost by mistake while studying the wings, flight, and function of a very unusual bird. Yeah, so my PhD advisor at the time had had started this project, and he was interested in looking at how certain birds develop, or basically how they learn how to fly. How do you go from a little fuzzy chick up to a big adult, powerful flying kind of bird, and what are the steps that they go through? And the bird he was working on at the time and that we continued to work with for a number of years uh, and still work with in some cases is a bird called the chucker partridge. A partridge is a ground bird. They have big, strong legs and they run around on the ground and they do have strong, powerful flight muscles as well. They just don't use them that often. So you can think of like a chicken or a turkey, especially the more wild varieties of those things that are actually really good at flying, but only for short distances. They use flight mostly to escape. And so 
in this modern day world, they kind of act like a bit of a dinosaur that is learning how to fly, right? So they spend their time on the ground and they really only use flight in these limited circumstances. And what Ken Dial was doing, he actually had his young son at the time helping him out, studying these five, six, seven day old chicks and what they were doing. And one thing he was trying to have them do was jump up onto different heights of obstacles, trying to see how high they could jump and how that improved every day. And his son was frustrated because they weren't jumping. It looked like they were running up the side of this box. And that set off this whole series of studies to figure out how they were running up the side of the box. And it turns out they were using their wings in a, in a brand new way. What do you mean it turns out? Could you not see that the little babies were using their tiny wings that way? It took some technology to see this. So imagine just seeing a bird flying. It's really hard to see what the wings are doing uh, for most birds. They beat their wings really quickly. Uh, These birds as adults, they beat their wings around 15 times per second. We can see that their wings are moving, but to us it really looks like a blur. And so we use some high-speed cameras. You might see in a lot of different scientific labs, cameras that can record at 200 frames per second or 500 frames per second, even much faster than that to capture really fast-moving things. And then we can watch that back in slow motion. And so over a a series of studies, we use multiple high-speed cameras that let us actually reconstruct in three dimensions how these birds, these baby birds in most cases, were flapping their wings. And from that movement, we can make some predictions about the kinds of aerodynamic forces that these wings are producing. So basically, these week-old chucker partridges were running up steep boards in their boxes. Is that the deal? Yeah, so they were they were running up steep boards and flapping their wings. And with your naked eye, you thought they were just running with their legs. Well, we thought that they were running with their legs and they were flapping, so you would think that they were flapping to push themselves up the ramp. Basically flying up the ramp, but they can't really fly, so they had to kind of run too. Right. And that's not what they're doing. <laughs> so this is where it got exciting, is it turns out that they are not producing a force to push them up the ramp. And so just for simplicity, they will run up a vertical ramp. So they will run up a very steep slope. Actually, they can go up an inverted ramp. They can basically run up upside down. But if you imagine them going up in a vertical ramp, uh, they are not producing a force that pushes them straight up. They are, in fact, producing a force that at, that at most actually is pushing them into the ramp, into the wall that they're running up. And What that's doing, as we've discovered through a number of different measurement techniques, what they're doing is they're actually giving their feet traction. They're producing a force that gives them the traction so that their legs can do the work for them. So we liken it to the spoiler on a race car, pushing the car into the ground so that the wheels have traction to go around corners. How amazing that these tiny, weak old birds could already do that with their limbs or wings. Do they really have wings yet? No, that's the surprising thing. If you were to find this little bird as a fossil and just see the bones, you would look at this. And even if you saw the the wing, even if you saw the feathers in the fossil, you would say there's no way that this wing has any aerodynamic function or useful function. And that's the kind of thing that paleontologists have been saying for hundreds of years. However, when you take this bird and apply all the muscles and everything else to it, you bring it back to life, it can do these amazing things. So these little wings, when they're about seven days old, is when they really start to show this big improvement. Um, These little wings we've discovered can only provide about 10% of the force required to fly. And yet, they can run up a 70 or 80 degree slope with that wing. So here we have a very small, very early proto-wing, a wing that definitely cannot fly. And yet it's incredibly beneficial because these little birds can run up a slope that things without wings can't run up. So what part of this discovery helped the scientific community make the evolutionary transition from T-Rex to bird? How did it change scientists' conception of how and why dinosaurs evolved into birds? 
Well, so it it gives us a clear, visible, testable, measurable example of what wings can do even before the wings are capable of actual flight. Before this, we never really had a good example. And that's where people came up with these wonderfully creative stories without any evidence at all to say... Maybe the birds jumped out of a tree and glided. Maybe the birds were jumping on the backs of other things, or maybe birds were using their wings as nets to capture insects. But here we actually have some examples that we can see and do all of these measurements on of what these wings can do even before the wings can't support full flight. And these activities are beneficial to the bird. So if you're a young chick and you can run up a slope, you can get away from a predator. If you can jump off an elevated surface and not hurt yourself and even direct your flight, you can get away from a predator or save yourself from injury. And every little step where your wing gets bigger and your muscles get stronger allow you to improve those activities that much more. So it's relatively easy conceptually then to apply that thinking to the trajectory that dinosaurs would have taken. So was there a moment when somebody on the team went, oh my gosh, This will go a long way to explaining this linkage between dinosaurs and birds. There were several of those moments. There was one very early on when we first realized that this was an example of half of a wing being useful. Then there was another moment really looking at the high resolution details of how these birds move their wings in three dimensions. And we discovered that they move their wings exactly the same way no matter what they're doing. Uh, we had this moment of thinking this is parsimony, this is simplicity. So we have a, a paradigm in evolutionary biology where the most parsimonious answer is the hypothesis that should be elevated for consideration. And that means that the, the easiest one, the one with the fewest steps, it's like Occam's razor that says the, the, the simplest answer is probably the correct one, right? So they can learn to move their wings to run up a gentle slope. That's it. They don't have to learn anything else. They don't have to evolve anything else. They can just continue to evolve a bigger and bigger wing. But by moving the wings in the same way, it actually opens up this whole world of running up vertical surfaces, jumping off and flying horizontally and doing all of the vast array of flight behaviors that we see today. Well, Brandon Jackson, this is fascinating. Thank you for sharing your work with us on With Good Reason. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Brendan Jackson is a biology professor at Longwood University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Years ago, a wind farm was built near Rose Guano Cave in Spring Valley, Nevada. But the cave housed thousands of migratory bats, and people worried the propellers from the wind turbines would endanger the bats. Enter Rick Sherwin. He's an ecology professor at Christopher Newport University. Using lasers and other high-tech equipment, he helped build an ingenious system that slows the turbines as the bats are leaving the cave. He says it's been tremendously successful, reducing the bat deaths per year from about 75 to zero. Rick, tell me about the Rose Guano Cave and the kinds of bats that live there. Um, Yeah, Rose Guano Cave is located in eastern Nevada, fairly close to Great Basin National Park. Um, It's not huge. It probably has 300 feet of horizontal passageway, but it is very tall. Um, And the the bats that live there are Mexican free-tail bats, which are a migratory species. And there's been bat use at at this cave historically. It was uh, first described in the literature as a guano mine during the 1920s and 1930s, where they had an active mining operation removing the guano for fertilizer, which they sold throughout the state and throughout the West Coast. We don't really know anything that occurred before that, and we really don't have very good records of even the guano mining itself. So, you know, really, as far as bat use goes, we only understand back until about the 1980s how the cave was used by this species. You've called it a bachelor cave site for bats. 
What is a bachelor cave snail? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this this species, they they move huge distances, and um, some of them are going as far south as Mexico. And the males and females move down to these migratory roosts, and they're they're spread around uh, Western North America. And that's where they, they mate. This is a species that doesn't hibernate. They, they mate in their wintering grounds. And then the females move north and into mat- what's called a maternity colony where they give birth to and then rear the young. And the males during this time period are sort of off on their own. And any accumulation of males that we get is, is referred to as a bachelor roost or a bachelor colony. These are Mexican free-tailed bats. What do they look like? What are they, what are they like? You know, some people think they're cute, and I tend to think most bats are cute. This is not one of the cute species. Um, <laughs> they're sort of a uh, kind of a grayish color. Um, they have these wrinkly little faces. They're relatively small, uh, probably 12 to 20 grams, somewhere in there. Um, they have really, really long, narrow wings. And so this is a species that's designed to fly at speed in open environment. You know, basically their strategy, they... They come up out of the cave and in that big um, ballroom that I mentioned earlier, they they rotate uh, clockwise, gain altitude and speed inside of the cave and then just come flying out. You know, if you blink, you'll miss them. So are the bats transitory? Are they sort of overnighting there and then moving on? Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, it's, it's very, it's turned out to be actually a a really, really confusing cave in the way that the bats are using it. We've done radio telemetry with them, and we found that they stay about three days or so, and then they leave, and they, they go such great distances that we haven't been able to track them, even, even with an airplane. They just are gone. But during the summer months, we have individuals that appear to stay there virtually all summer. And that, that has been a surprise uh, to us. Is that, you know They arrive as early as May, and, and the colony, the cave is inhabited all summer, and then we get these migratory pulses coming through as well. You started helping protect those bats when a wind farm was built nearby. How dangerous is a wind farm for bats? Well, an, an unmitigated wind farm, you know, one that, that's put in without any sort of biological evaluations or uh, biological strategy, can be really devastating. The animals don't even have to hit the turbines. Bats are small enough that if they get close to those spinning blades, there's a, such a, a large change in barometric pressure that the, the lungs just simply collapse and the animal dies. So when you started studying this, how many bats were being killed by the wind turbines? And is this a problem all across the country? We started before the turbines were put in place. And so we had a pretty good idea of how the bats moved across the landscape and um, how they interact with the, the, the precise footprint where the wind farm was going to be. We had a radar system that we could track the bats as they leave the cave. And we knew beforehand that most of them were leaving the cave, flying up to an altitude of, of two to 3,000 feet, and then flying directly south to some um, agricultural areas. And so that put most of them already above the wind turbine blades. Um, but when the blades were first started up, Initially, there are a couple of dozen that we that we know of. You determine that by basically walking the, the wind farm every morning and, and looking for carcasses. So it wasn't a huge impact. It was never one of these wind farms where we had hundreds or thousands of animals dying at a given time. But the cumulative impact, if it was to remain sort of unmitigated, uh, could potentially be huge. And, and it wouldn't surprise, have surprised me if there would be periods of time where the, the numbers would be much higher. I'm fascinated that you and your graduate students devised a brilliant way to help save the bats and yet still let the blades turn. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, we were we were part of a, a team with uh, biologists from the Nevada Department of Wildlife um, who actually brought us on board uh, this project. And one of the, the uh, researchers up in Canada, the University of Alberta, had determined that if you could slow the wind turbines, slow the rotation of those blades, just a, a little bit, a couple of miles per hour. The bats don't, uh, they, it drops below that pressure threshold so they don't, they don't die from that borrow trauma. And once that occurs, we're not really getting uh, mortality from impact, um, in, in bats at least. And so the strategy was to 
it's called tethering, to slow those turbines uh, just enough so that it would reduce mortality or eliminate mortality in the bats, but also leave them spinning at a rate that was continuing to, to produce energy. It's pretty expensive mm-hmm. energetically to start a stopped turbine. And so in working with the company, the idea was, you know, can we, can we have both things? Can we continue to have green energy in this particular area and have a, a robust and healthy uh, population of bats? And so we ended up setting up a system at the mouth of the cave that's a, a beam break system that basically kind of um, kind of like when you walk out of a grocery store and it, it counts you or um, you hear that beep. Um, yeah. And basically, when whenever the beam is broken, that is translated as as a bat, as a bat passing through. And so, once there's a certain threshold that's met, and usually that happens within about five minutes of the start of the outflight, it it uh, feeds into the turbine system and, and automatically slows and tethers those blades. And since since that became active, uh, we haven't found any any dead animals at the the wind farm. Your students must love going out with you. You've taken nearly 100 over the years. For me, being able to include students is, is really, really satisfying. And most of the students that, uh, that I have have never been out west. Some have, some have never camped. Most of them have never done any sort of field work before. And so this is a site that you know, they, uh, they go out there for the entire summer. Um, there's a lot of camping uh, the cave is uh, probably 40, 40 miles from the nearest grocery store. And so, you know, they just kind of jump in. And, and this is a great basin habitat, lots of sagebrush and pinyon juniper. It's dry and hot during the day, and be, but because it's high elevation, it can be very, very cold at night. And so, you know, they experience everything out there. Aren't you afraid of possibly getting some deadly virus from the bats like the coronavirus? No, you know, there's, there's always going to be risks uh, working with wildlife. And we do everything we can to not handle the bats. You know, so that most of my trips when we go out, we don't actually sit and handle them. It's, it's only when there's data that we can only get um, through capture and handling. Um, and even then, um, you know, we wear gloves and... Uh, we're very, very careful with them. Um, you know, you can't mitigate entirely uh, the risk, but I think with something like COVID, once this uh, be- became part of our new normal, the, the biggest concern was actually us as researchers transferring COVID to, to the bats. And so there was a moratorium put on bat work throughout the country um, right at the beginning of the, the outbreak. And um, at least in Nevada, where I work, I can now go and work in and around caves and abandoned mines, but I, I would have to um, submit an entire new uh, survey protocol to get permission to actually handle any. That's really interesting. Was that protocol set up more to protect the bats or more to protect us transmitting it to them and then them transmitting it to humans? I think it depends on the perspective of of who you're talking to. For the wildlife folk, um, definitely uh, protecting the animals. For those that probably their supervisors and those folks who have the more global picture of things, I think exactly that that yo-yo effect of us possibly giving it to the bats and then us being susceptible to getting it back from them, which is especially poignant at a place like Rose Guano where you know, the bats that we encounter at Rose Guano may fly as far south as Mexico. And so you've got a range of potential impact that's, that's much, much greater than you would have with a, a species that stays in place and migrates during the winter. What's your take on this idea that bats are believed to have transmitted COVID-19 to people in China? What do you know that would help us understand why bats would be carriers of this more than other animals like coyotes or possums or such. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, but from an ecology standpoint, one of the fascinating things about bats is they age very slowly. You know, usually as a general rule in, in mammals, the smaller they are, the shorter their lifespan. Where in bats, these are animals that are very, very small, uh, six grams and up. Um, a big bat in North America would be 25 grams, but they live upwards of 30 years. And so one element of their, their biology and ecology appears to be that they're very, very good immune systems. 
um, to the point that they don't tend to um, get ill from the viruses or the bacteria, whatever it is that they carry. It tends to get on them and sit and stay. And so they then pass it along to more susceptible species. What interested you as a bat guy when you heard about coronavirus being linked to bats in China? You know, it was actually pretty devastating. You know, it's, it's, it's been a long, hard fight to get an animal like bats sort of uh, included in the conservation message and, and sort of appreciated for the, the ecological services they provide. And so something like this you know, my concern is that it could lead to some sort of uh, proactive attempt to, to manage through the closing of caves or extirpating bats from particular locations. And so, so that's my biggest concern is sort of that natural reaction, I think, that a lot of people have to remove the problem, which in this case uh, may be perceived as being, being the bats. Well, Rick Sherwin, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. It was fun. Rick Sherwin is an ecology professor at Christopher Newport University. Coming up next, clear your calendars and make way for Toad Day. Every year for the last 14 years, Jason Gibson, a biology professor at Patrick Henry Community College, hosts something called Herp Blitz. It's a family-friendly event where scientists and the general public venture outdoors to survey reptiles and amphibians in the wild. Jason, you and your family celebrate something you call Toad Day, like it's a national holiday. What is Toad Day? Well, our American toad, which is a very common toad found, you know, all along the East Coast and many parts of North America, um, it's an explosive breeder, which means that it comes out and it breeds on one or two days a year. So we um, lovingly call it Toad Day because on that particular day, we go out to ponds and we try to listen for the frogs and uh, they come out in the, in the hundreds. I remember my youngest son would go out in diapers and get muddy and we would catch buckets and buckets uh, full of toads. Toad Day is, uh, is a very special event because it only happens once or twice uh, a year. Did you let him go again? Oh, of course. Yes, we always let everything go alive and uh, healthy, just like we caught them. At times along a river trail that I walk on, I'll see tiny toads hopping every few feet. Could that be Toad Day? And I never realized it. That actually is Metamorph Day. So um, when toads lay eggs, they become tadpoles. They'll come out and uh, go through metamorphosis. And so those little itty-bitty toads are called metamorphs. And so they explosively come out of the ponds. And uh, they do that so that uh, predators are overwhelmed. If you overload a predator with too much food, it, it uh, gorges itself, and then a lot of toads still survive. But if they came up individually one at a time, you know, they would be more easily picked off by predators. Is there also Frog Day and Turtle Day? Not really. Um, there are some species of frogs that are explosive breeders, like your toads. But many other frogs, they have really long periods of time that they breed over. Uh, for example, we have a frog that's called the green frog here. It's a very common frog. And it might start calling in April, and then it stops calling in September. What have you found recently that excites you? So I think uh, after looking for 25 years, I finally found a salamander this year called the shovelnose salamander. And that was the hardest salamander I've ever found. It's only found in maybe three or four streams or in this little small area. These places are really remote that we oftentimes go to. And so hundreds and hundreds of logs flipped over, hundreds and hundreds of rocks, probably tons of rocks. And, um, and then you find one. What is herpetological surveying? Who are you so, surveying? Herpetological, herp means creep, to creep. Herpetology is the study of things that creep around. So uh, amphibians and reptiles would be the things that we're looking for. So during a herpetological survey, we're going out and we're usually working with the public. So we, we go out, we get a group of people, we teach them how to roll logs and how to uh, flip rocks and do it consciously, conscious of the environment so that we're not damaging things as much as possible. And uh, we go out and we just collect everything we possibly can. 
You and your partner have also created something you called Herp Blitz. What's a Herp Blitz? So in about 2006, uh, we did create Herp Survey. My friend Paul Sattler and I created Herp Survey, and uh, it's been going for 14 years uh, ever since. Um, I am a member of the Virginia Herpetological Society, the Society that Studies Reptiles and Amphibians, and they've been doing surveys since uh, the 1990s. So we are complementing um, the HERP surveys that they do every single year that are open to the public, free of charge, that anybody can go to. And uh, so we're complementing that, uh, just increasing the number of surveys that we're doing. Um, so that's been going for 14 years, but because of COVID this year, uh, we didn't have the opportunity to do a HERP survey because everybody was in lockdown. What have you discovered from the herp blitzes and also the longer herpetological surveys that our populations are going down or up? It's very hard to tell if populations are going up and down with, with reptiles and amphibians. The problem with, with understanding populations is that, you know, the environment is constantly changing over time. So we have this thing called ecological succession. You know, forests are growing, they're maturing, ponds are filling in. So when you, when you think that you have a population in decline, that may be true because of ecological succession. But what I've noticed just as a citizen of Virginia for many, many years, I mean, my whole life, 50 years, um, I've noticed that there's been a lot of habitat alteration. You know, we have more malls going up and more roads being built. So my general suspicion is that uh, the populations of reptiles and amphibians are going down because we're, we're still, you know, altering the environment and, and not in such a good way for them. So what, what we hope in our herpetological surveys is that we may see some trends that will be, you know, trends that you might see 100 or 200 years from now. So what we're trying to do is to create a record today so that future scientists could look at that and say, wow, they found this number of creatures in this area over this amount of time. We're not seeing anything here or we're seeing a lot of things here. So we're hoping that we're creating a record that future people will be able to um, to utilize um, to, to see how these populations are, are, are changing. I wish I had data from a scientist 100 years ago. So, but very few people did herp surveys. I mean, herp surveys only really began in, in, in the early 1900s um, in Virginia. So, you know, we rely on those records to understand how some things have changed. Some things have improved. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the beaver was uh, completely extirpated, destroyed from Virginia, and now we've let it come back. So, we have more beaver ponds today than we did in the past. So that may, you know, uh, positively benefit um, certain species of, uh, of uh, reptiles and amphibians. Um, I know if you look at uh, real science that's been done, herp, uh, where they've done call surveys, it, they seem to indicate that the uh, bullfrog uh, is, is increasing in its numbers in Virginia, but that's the only species that I know of that's, uh, that's benefiting from humans. I mean, we've built a lot of ponds and the bullfrog's done really well because it has to have ponds in order to, to do its reproduction. I really miss all the turtles that I used to see by the roads when I was growing up. It seemed like every time we'd head out to swimming practice in the misty morning, we'd see big turtles crossing the road from one pond to another, and lots of box turtles around in the fields and yards. I just don't see that anymore. Did you know why you saw the turtles crossing the road? No, why? Because probably it was a female that was going up to lay eggs. So they will come out of the ponds. The big turtles, they don't normally come out of the ponds, but they'll come up to lay eggs. So the female will take her hind legs and she'll take and she'll scoop out a little hole that she will then deposit her eggs in and then cover it up. Sometimes she makes false nests in order to fake out raccoons and skunks, things that are predators of their eggs. But that's a problem with, um, with roads. You know, when you put a road through a wetland habitat, you know, these creatures don't understand roads. They actually like roads because they're warm at night. So, um, you know, some of our best herping that we do is at night road cruising, looking for things that are just basically getting heat off the, off the road at night. And how many of us haven't stopped a car, picked up a box turtle, and tried to put it on the other side where it was headed, right? I, I saw a lady the other day when I was going to Walmart. She was stopped and picked up a 10 or 15 pound um, snapping turtle. It's amazing to see people, you know, so generous to do that. You're writing a book about amphibians now with your partner. What's new that you want to share in this book? 
Well, anybody that's ever written a book knows that it is a labor of love. It is a tremendously complex task to undertake. So my friend Paul Sattler and I, we've been doing projects together and writing papers together for 20 years. We're going to take all the salamanders, there's 59 salamanders in Virginia, and we're taking all the frogs and toads, 28 species of those. And so we're writing a uh, a scientific publication showing everything that's ever been documented about these particular species. You know, we know very little about these creatures, and but there has been a lot written about them. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to find what has been written, what do we know, and what do we not know. I know I'm fascinated by them, and you are, and lots of people are, but why should we care about preserving and fostering populations of reptiles and amphibians? You know, they they give us information about the health of the environment. This is a really critical feature that they provide for us for free. So if you go into an area and you don't find any frogs, you got to begin to wonder, is the water quality poor or is there some kind of pollution? So I think uh, in, in that regard, you know, they are little monitors. You know, they're canaries in the coal mine of what uh, is going on in the environment. So I think it's really important that we study them and, uh, and begin to understand more how we can help preserve them in the future. Couldn't agree more. Jason Gibson, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you very much. Jason Gibson is a professor of biology at Patrick Henry Community College. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aidan Carroll is our intern. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.